Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-dualistic, non-violent, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. I am joined by our two regulars, Sue Grimmett and Peter Catt. It is good to be back with both of you. Thanks, Dom. Thank you, Dom. And uh, we're very excited today to be joined um, by a man many people would know uh, from a saga he went through a number of years ago. Now, Peter Grester joins us on the On The Way podcast. Peter, how do you introduce yourself? Because do you just go straight in with the, I spent 400 days in an Egyptian uh, prison? Do you start with Australia, that? Australia's best known terrorist, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> of course, you, well, you have you have been a foreign correspondent for a lot of your life as a journalist. Yeah, and I kind of wish I'd, I'd been known more for the, for the correspondent <laughs> work than, than for, for the terrorism bit um yeah yeah i spent um more than 25 26 years as a foreign correspondent mm. uh, mostly for the bbc but also for reuters and, and al jazeera who i was working for when i finally wound up in egypt yes yeah uh, and you've, you've worked in places such as afghanistan mm-hmm. parts of africa southern america some pretty um uh, volatile places uh you know and there's a whole lot of this we want to explore today in a conversation around truth and um, uh, the abyss that, that truth is, which is a quote you use at the start of your um, book, which we, we do want to explore shortly. Uh, but you, you, I mean, we're, we're sitting with a man who has spoken to the Taliban um, and had conversations with the Taliban, which is yeah. certainly not something many of us have done. But obviously the, the major story of your life, the headline that any interview you get, I know it's the one you're going to be asked about, is the 400 days in an Egyptian prison. Um, for those who might know the story, can you give us a, a brief recap if you're happy to speak about yeah, it? Yeah, sure. No, no problem at all. Look, uh, I was working in Egypt um, at the end of 2013. Uh, I was working for Al Jazeera at the time as a correspondent based in Nairobi, and Al Jazeera was short-staffed over the Christmas New Year period, 2013 into 2014, and they, they asked me to go up to help cover the Bureau. Um, now, Egypt was going through a, a bit of a political crisis at the time, the, the first democratically elected government that Egypt had ever had, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood government, had been ousted in a coup about six months earlier. And so what we saw was a transitional government with supporters of both the Muslim Brotherhood government and the interim administration, both on the streets, vying for for political power. Um, Now, I didn't know Egypt particularly well. Um, I was just called in to do what I'd consider to be fairly routine journalism. The government makes an announcement changes to the constitution, for example. Um, you'd pick up the phone, you'd call the opposition to make sen- uh, for, a na- for a response, and then you'd find an analyst to make sense of it all. It was vanilla journalism. But the problem was that the government had started accusing the Muslim Brotherhood of being involved in acts of terrorism and passed legislation um, criminalising advocating terrorist ideology. Now, we were concerned about that, but we also recognised, we thought that the government was serious when it said, as it had written into the new constitution, that it was serious about uh, protecting press freedom. But it turns out that by speaking to the Brotherhood and uh, broadcasting their views, we, in the eyes of the government, had crossed a line. Um, because on the night of December 28th, I was getting ready to go out for dinner with a friend of mine when there was a knock on the hotel door. Um, I opened the door up and embarrassed a whole bunch of state security agents. They ransacked the room, um, arrested me and threw me in prison and I found myself charged with terrorism offences. And uh, after a lengthy six-month trial, we were finally convicted and sentenced to seven years. Um, Yeah. Mm. But you got out, obviously, only 400, Four, only 400 yeah, only, only, only 400 dollars. Well, in relative terms, it was a, a, <laughs> a short, much shorter than it could have been. Yeah, no, uh, the, the, there was a huge international campaign. I'm sure a lot of listeners will mm. remember that. Um, 
and it involved all sorts of governments from around the world, including um, Barack Obama in the United States. The British government got involved, obviously the Australians, the European Union was there. Um, and after, under all of that pressure, um, the president, uh, President Sisi, finally not pardoned me, but released me on, on an executive order. Mm. Yeah, right. Well, th this, I guess, sets the ground of the conversation we want to have today, which is around the truth and the, uh, the incredible importance of truth and how truth maybe has been attacked uh, or is being obscured in the world we're in in a whole bunch of ways. Before we do uh, get into that too much, Sue, I might ask you, because some people who listen to this regularly and hear you know, us talk about theology with various theologians might wonder how a conversation around truth and truth in the media relates to, to these things and to the topics generally of the podcast. Why is there such an integral link in, in your eyes? I guess I'm, you know, been fascinated by Peter's story. Um, just just admire him so much for the, the courage he's shown in, in believing that truth needs to be exposed. That, you know, mm. and I think from my point of view, I'm deeply concerned in Australian culture that we've got a little bit um, casual. We've been very comfortable. We've got a little bit casual about how we um, uh, about protecting our freedoms for starters, but also uh, I think there's a spiritual principle at, at play here of exposing the truth, of actually being open and honest. And the only way that culturally we can be healthy is if we tell the truth. Mm. And if we understand, because we are involved globally in, you know, we're, whether we're talking from 9-11 and, and the Iraq war and, and our engagement there, I think the only way we can understand ourselves is knowing our history and that history being open to scrutiny at our part in it being open to scrutiny. And from, I mean, from a theological point of view, it, it comes down to um, living transparent lives and then how we make sense of the world because spirituality is essentially about our connectedness with one another and i know um peter you've often been accused as in your your life as a priest of being too focused on the social gospel and the the social implications of a faith life so to you this this might be an old question the sense of how are these two connected well I, I, in, indeed um and it goes well for us as christians it goes back to john's gospel where jesus is called the truth mm. and then it begs the question, so what does that look like? Because it's a person and people are complex. And also there's that wonderful question during the trial of Jesus where Jesus talks about coming to reveal the truth and Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? And I think that's actually the key question that we're trying to unpack today is that at one level truth looks like it's a simple concept, but as we get further and further into understanding how people interact we understand we begin to realize that it's very complex and mm. Pilate was understanding that Jesus was a very complex character who looked like a terrorist he was he was certainly challenging the order of things and yet he was also uh, proposing to do this transformation using non-violent means and so you know he was he was tried as a criminal he was executed and that question of what is truth you know hangs over the whole of that story and continues to hang over us because we you know I often hear preachers talk about how they say that we have the truth and then distill something that I think is untrue. Mm. So, you know, this idea that you can claim truth as an absolute um, 
and then the absolutes move. You know, it's not that long ago that slavery was seen as an okay thing because it's mentioned in the Bible, and so a truth teller would have said that that uh, slavery was consistent with God's will. Mm. Now we wouldn't hold to that truth anymore, and so I think there's a whole field to be explored and uh, I appreciate the insights Peter brings to that in his book you know referring to truth as an abyss and how we have to plunge into the abyss to to explore what truth really is like well well Peter it is how you open your book um, the first casualty which recounts your story uh, I guess in the Egyptian prison and also what you've seen happening to journalism and to truth tellers globally why did you choose that quote to begin the book with um, that quote let me just, do we get the quote? Sorry. Get the whole quote up. <laughs> get the quote out. Give me a it's, worth, it's worth reading. I, yeah, let me read it. it it's, from, um, it's from Franz Kafka, uh, who writes, The truth is always an abyss. One must, as in a swimming pool, dive from the quivering springboard of trivial everyday experience and sink into the depths in order to later rise again, laughing and fighting for breath to the now doubly illuminated surface of things. I love that quote because it talks about it talks about the the confusion of truth. It talks about um, the way that truth can appear to be a solid thing, but often is is very liquid. Mm. But it also talks about the revelations of, of truth. Um, I guess the, the the distinction that you that I want to make, and the reason I called it the first the book, the first casualty, was of course um, the the the. the the short form of the longer quote, which is also the first casualty of war, is the truth. Um, and it become the, the idea of truth is something that when we speak about it feels, as Peter was saying, feels very solid. It feels like something you can and should be able to get your hand on and that it's something that we all ought to be able to agree on as a fundamental. But it isn't a thing that is solid that you can get your fist around. It is something that is malleable because, as, again, as Peter said, truth, what we hold to be true, changes over time. And this also make, challenges the whole idea of one of the fundamental assumptions which is often made with journalism, and that's objectivity. That journalists should be objective viewers of the truth. The trouble is it also is that objectivity is it itself is, is, is a bit of a myth. Um, you always have to make subjective choices about what you see and how you report. Um, and when you're dealing with not objective observers, but sub subjective observers trying to deal with a movable truth at both sides of the equation, you've got something that's spongy and malleable. And so we start to get into these really difficult ideas mm. of, of what is actually real. Um, now, I don't want to get away. I, I don't mean that we should be therefore absolving ourselves of responsibility for seeking out what is true, um, what the facts are, what is undeniable. Um, but at the same time, you've got to be aware of the complexities that this brings. I think that truth is an abyss quote comes out through your book in that subjectivity idea that you've got there, there because you bring a whole lot of people's subjective experience and when you look at it from that fractured lens of so many different perspectives, you start to inch close to something that might be truth and yet is 
almost unbearably complex. And I think this is one of the things that you've got, if you understand that truth itself is subjective, the more, the more planes that you look at, the more people that you speak to mm. with openness and respect, the more you understand not just how each person's truth appears, but you get it that way you're, you're in a much better position to get closer to something mm, mm. Um, that is actually real. Yeah, we're after a sort of informed subjectivity yes. rather than objectivity, and it's, it's, it's battling towards being informed so yeah. that our subjectivity is informed rather than... And, and I, I think one of the things for, um, for humans is that we we easily slide between knowledge and belief and we are not good at recognising when we've done that. And so not so long ago I was reading a news report about a lady who was homeschooling her kids and she was homeschooling her kids because she said that the school system wasn't teaching them how to think. And she thought that um, teaching people how to think was really, really important because that's how you d- discern the truth. And then she went on to say, and one of the biggest problems I have with the school system is that it's teaching kids about climate change and we as a family don't believe in climate change. So she's mixing up this idea of being informed with belief and in, in the course of an answer to one question has slid between the two mm. and conflated them, mixed them up and ended up with what to another observer, I was going to say an objective observer, but that would be (laughs) (laughs) to claim something I'm not, um, to another observer just seemed to be absurd. Yeah. Wanting wanting people to think and then, but not think about this because we don't believe in it. But one of the interesting things is as an academic now, because I'm now a professor of journalism at the University of Queensland, um, I've stepped over into academia and it's interesting to see the way that academia tackles uh-huh. these questions. And, and the fundamental tenet of academia is actually very similar to the fundamental tenet of journalism, and that is always to question. Mm. It's never to take things at face value. And by constantly questioning and challenging underlying assumptions, you can peel away those layers of subjectivity. And even though you can never achieve pure objectivity in the sense that we would like, I mean, Physics maybe is one of those areas where you can, pure mathematics perhaps, but everything else has its layers of subjectivity. But by asking those questions, challenging assumptions, then you're able to get to something more fundamental. And that's what we as journalists are trying to do, is by constantly questioning and challenging. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are um, disagreeing with but it means that you have a responsibility or you're fulfilling your responsibility to say, yes, but why? And then I think you, you, you're you capable of reaching something. One of the most moving parts of your book for me actually was something that did challenge my idea of truth, which is I think many people would say that, that they have believed the Taliban to be a purely evil, almost entirely inhumane. There is no trace of humanity left in these people. Um, yet obviously you've had conversations with them, and, and this was pre-9-11, but you actually write um, about a conversation you had with a member of the Taliban who found out you were uh, of Christian faith and made one of the great interfaith harmony comments I think I've ever <laughs> heard. They said, Allah is like a mountain that we're all trying to climb. It's just that we follow different paths to the summit. Um, you know, and I, I thought that was a, a pretty moving quote and certainly not something you would associate with someone from the Taliban. So it, it's almost like, at least at that stage, that person in some way had a grasp of the multifaceted 
nuance of truth. Yeah, and one of the things in those early days, and and this is something else, and we can talk about this later, but you know, as time has progressed, what we've seen is that we tend to flatten our people that we perceive of as our enemies out into two-dimensional caricatures. Mm. And the Taliban regard us, I'm sure, in the same way as we've come to see them as two-dimensional caricatures which are fundamentally evil. In those early days, um, this was back in 1995, before 9-11, long before 9-11, the Taliban were grappling with this new world of Afghanistan that they'd taken control over. And even though they're theologically quite very, very conservative, um, they were relatively agnostic with people that they didn't understand. They had very strong views about what they thought a good Muslim should look like. But they recognized Christians and Jews as people of the book, all of the Abrahamic faiths, um, and so part of the same theological lineage. But they didn't necessarily understand this. They didn't agree with, my, with our theology, but they didn't necessarily, but they accepted that there was you know, if they didn't understand it, they could sort of recognize that that's your faith and it's mm. up to you what you think. You're not necessarily my enemy. Um, and we had some long conversations about this stuff. Um, and, you know, you recognize that for a lot of Taliban, what they were doing was was trying to reestablish control and law and order and a degree of peace and stability over a country that had been torn apart by warlords and all that they had to work with was, was the Quran and Sharia law. Um, and and so that's what they that was their their handbook their manual if you like. And uh, you you go on also to tell the story of when you were in I think it was when you were in the Egyptian prison, <laughs> and you were there with some other people who were Islamic extremists, um, you know, convicted of, of other terrorism crimes, and their perspective on what was happening, you know, when there were terrorist attacks, <laughs> was vastly different to what a common Westerners would be. You know, a common Western would think for no reason really at all, except that they hate us. They'll come to, you know, a city centre somewhere in the Western world and, and you know, cause havoc. But but obviously being able to talk to them, you had a totally different perspective on the truth of that. Yeah, and, and a lot of the times, look, when you're sitting inside a concrete box alongside these guys, it's hard not to see the world from their perspective. And again, I don't want to suggest to anyone that I accept um, their extremist ideologies. But, it's, but you do start to understand the logic that underpins the way that they see and understand the world. Um, and there are plenty of them who said, look, we tried democracy. We, we did what the West wanted. We, we, we toppled a dictator. We shed lots of our blood. We held elections. We, we had our own people elected to power. And now look where it's got us. We're actually in a situation that's far worse than it was before. Why would we be so stupid to go that route again? Democracy has failed us, failed miserably. And even though there are all sorts of flaws in that kind of argument, sitting inside a concrete box in Egypt, um, you know, on the orders of of a pretty horrific autocrat, it's pretty hard to dis- to argue with him. Mm. I think you you also go on to write in the book in that section that there was a feeling from some of them that they wanted to do back to America, for Mm. instance, just a sample of what they felt had been done to them. Yes, that's correct, yes. I remember um, this was a really interesting conversation from a guy who said, listen, our people live in villages. 
they're deprived of access to health and education because of the, the, the economic structures of the world. Um, you, your people fire hellfire missiles from drones on our villages. They, you target our, our village mosques, our schools, our wedding parties. Our people are dying all the time. And these drones are piloted by someone sitting in Langley. And yet when one of us has the courage of our convictions to strap bombs to themselves and make your people feel just a tiny fraction of what we go through every day, still you have the temerity to call us the terrorists. And again, it, it, you understand what Gandhi says when he says that an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And, and so that kind of that kind of attack and retribution is only going to head in one direction. But at the same time, when you, when you hear someone speak like that, you start to recognize the way that they experience the world, what is truth for them. Um, and again, I will say this, that I do not endorse that view, but I do understand it. I think it shows also the power um, and the need for good journalism. And I hear, I wish I could remember what, and you may even remember it, uh, there was a series on SBS that before the Iraq war and um, as a TV crew went in and they just visited homes in some villages in Iraq. And they spent time doing like 24 hours with a family. Mm. And I, it sticks in my mind because it, um, it really shifted. Um, I, I found it quite shattering, actually, because these were everyday family. You get to start to care about their children and see what they're, what they're making for dinner. And they were providing them a commentary on the threat of, of the, the forthcoming war. And they said, look, you know, it doesn't matter. One, I remember clearly one... Um, of the family members just saying when they were interviewed, doesn't matter what we do, doesn't matter if we have weapons, if we don't have weapons, the Americans are coming and they're going to bomb us and many of us will die and my children are being threatened. This is just the reality for us. And to see that in the context of their normal family life, um, and, and of course then they were proved right, it, it did just happen regardless of weapons of mass destruction or not, and, and, and it stayed with me all through these years, that, that image of that family, um, because great journalism can give you that window and can help you to see with that subjective lens of what it feels like to be there. You would hope that in a civilised world, where a civilised Western world at least, I mean, who knows how civilised we are, but people who consider themselves civilised with some level of empathy, that if we heard these stories, if we saw this perspective, I mean, it's the whole situation whenever you sit down with someone who you've had a disagreement with and you hear them say, this is how I feel you hurt me. You, you feel like if enough people heard these stories they would call governments to account and say, no, I'm actually not okay with these drone strikes. I'm not okay with these methods. Do you feel like the, the need to even get to that truth is obscured though? Uh, yes, it is. And, and this is something that I think really it cuts to the core of, of the book. Um, remember that one of the tenets of, of good journalism is to speak to all of the parties involved in any kind of dispute, any kind of conflict. And if we go back to Afghanistan, that's what we were doing on a routine basis talking to the Taliban, talking to the pro-government forces, crossing the front lines physically to speak to everybody. Um, and we were encouraged by both sides in Afghanistan and the civil war because they both recognised that we had a role to play, but also by, by governments around the world who wanted to see and understand what was going on and 
what was driving all of the parties. But then what we saw after 9-11 was a situation where George W. Bush said in this war on terror, you are either with us or you are with the terrorists. There was no crossing of the lines. And they made it very clear that if you did what we journalists were supposed to do, and that's speak to the Taliban to try and understand, not to forgive, not to excuse, but to at least understand what was driving their actions, then you had crossed a red line as far as the West was concerned, as far as the United States and the Australian government was concerned, because you then became guilty of advocating terrorist ideology. Now, in my view, good journalism is about interrogating all sides so that we at least understand, because you can never defeat these, you can never, you can never resolve these kinds of conflicts until you understand what is driving your enemy, what is driving the other side. Um, that's the point at which you're able to engage and deal with the fundamental underlying problems because we've learned you can't bomb your way out of these kinds of disputes. Yeah, it, it's an emotionally immature response to just, you know, it is what people who are just in pain or haven't processed any relational breakdown, what they do to the other person in a sense. There is no sense of the nuance of I feel this but you felt that, you know, on a global level. And I, I know that we have obviously just in the past 12 months in Australia seen the raids on, on journalists on a number of occasions in 2019. Um, you, when you've, I guess, seen this going on for a long time, you've been held in an Egyptian prison in one of the most extraordinary attacks on media freedom we've seen in recent times. When you see things like press raids then happening in Australia to stop journalists who are maybe writing things about the government, um, you know, using and the government obviously uses that whole national security excuse to get away with everything, do you, how worried do you get? Oh, I, I get very, very concerned um, because in, in the classic model of, of democracy and journalism, uh, the media is the fourth estate. It's the fourth pillar, if you like, of the system alongside the executive, the judiciary and the legislature. Um, and in that, in that kind of model, the media is the, org is, is the organisation that acts or the institution that acts on behalf of the voters um, questioning and challenging and holding government and the powerful to account. Um, I completely accept that it's imperfect, it's messy, it's often undignified, it doesn't always work exactly as it should, but broadly it has helped keep Australia um, one of the safest, most prosperous and peaceful places on earth for the past couple of hundred years. Um, but what we're seeing is national security legislation closing down the space that journalists are able to operate in. Now, I recognise the need to, to maintain a degree of secrecy and security in government. There are some areas that should be absolutely off-limits, that must be secret, whether it's the private information of individuals, health and financial information, or the operational information of our security agencies. But there is an awful lot of other stuff which has been swept up in that very, very broad definition of what counts as national security, which is now being ruled as off-limits to journalists. And I think that's a problem, um, because that's, it's when you get those dark spaces that you start to see things going wrong. And, and I think that those in power begin to confuse national security with protecting their power, and when that happens we end up with 
um, really dark spaces. And we see that happening with freedom of information requests where they're increasingly being denied or edited to the point of point where they make no sense at all. And one of those safeguards which was meant to give us some sense of transparency is slowly but surely being retracted and national interest can be quite you know, in national interest or commercial incompetence and all those things can be declared and information that we should have is being withdrawn from us. Well, if we have to go back to the AFP raids, let's remind people what happened back then. Um, on one day in June last year, the police, the federal police, raided the home of Annika Smethurst, a News Corp journalist who had, um, it was to do with the story that she'd published over a year earlier in which she had reported on the way in which Home Affairs and Defence had been considering expanding the powers of an Australian agency called the ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, which is our international electronic eavesdropping agency. And they were, they were secretly considering expanding the authority of the ASD to allow it to spy on Australian communications. Now, there are a couple of points worth mentioning here. First of all, I don't care what you think of the rights or wrongs of, of what the ASD should or should not be doing. I think that that is a subject that is in the, clearly in the public interest that we all ought to be involved with. Whatever the nation decides is fine, but it's a debate that we all ought to be a part of. We need to know when our government decides to, to, to use its incredible technological prowess to actually spy on Australians. And maybe we think that's, maybe we can, we can accept that, but we need to be aware of it. Secondly, there was nothing that she published that was genuinely damaging to, to, to the public, to national security. Nobody suggested that, that security was undermined in any way. And so when you're in a situation where that kind of journalism, which is exposing a, a, a private, a secret conversation within government that affects all of us without actually damaging security, when that kind of reporting is criminalised, something is wrong. Mm. And I think that also gets down to our first question of, of why should people of faith be concerned about this stuff? Because when you think about things like the whistleblowers who um, have been threatened with legal action or had had, had charges lately, and we, there's situations like our some of the reporting and the, the silencing of the treatment of refugees on Manus and Nauru, mm. you know, that's a deep concern for people of faith who, who are um, advocating for... Um, some of the most vulnerable people that we cannot be given the truth and that even doctors aren't being allowed to mm. practice or to speak the truth, you know, you, then suddenly we're in a, in a case where we have to start to consider as human beings, which is, you know, as, mm. as people of faith, this is our main project. How can we be, you know, how can we live into the best mm. humanity we mm. were created to be and, and be there for one another and care for, for the most vulnerable and yet that's our ability to even know about these things is being cut down. And that's where we come back to the problem of truth. You know, you can't have those conversations mm. about what the appropriate course of action is unless you know what is going on yes. in places like Manus and Nauru. Mm. Now, again, I'm not going to enter into a debate about the rights or wrongs of the offshore detention policy, but that policy in, in a democracy is enacted in our names yes. and if it is being enacted in our mm. names we have not just a right but a responsibility to know yes. what is being done in our names yes. so that we can participate in, a, in an informed political debate but if you don't know mm. then you can't be, yes. be a part of that conversation. Yeah. We have a right to even know who these people are mm. because we're told that they're a national security threat that uh, people 
those who some of us would see as um, people fleeing persecution are being turned into invaders. And so you know, this, mm. the, the narrative becomes the, the, the narrative becomes one that's quite corrupted. And, the, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier too, that the moment you empathise, you have enough information mm. about who they are and yes. what their backstories are, then you start to get a degree of empathy. And that's yes. where it mm. becomes much harder to demonise or criminalise yes. them or mm. see them as somehow as, as threats. And a few years ago when we declared sanctuary, the, the, uh, for the cohort who was in Australia threatened with return to Nauru, the thing that actually changed public opinion was that we had the names, photos, particularly of the children, and we could say these, these are the human beings who are being threatened with return to Nauru. They're not numbers, they're not a concept, they're actually flesh and blood. And people rallied to that because they could empathise with the true human plight rather than the alleged threat. And I think the way it comes to the, the national narrative too, that how we are actually understanding ourselves, when you have that information, it, it changes some of the, the, the well, there has been demonising in the media and, and in the political um, rhetoric around refugees. And I, I was struck actually by two things. I was reading your book, Peter, at the same, just before I went to a, a multi-faith um, prayer vigil for the bushfire crisis, which, which um, is currently uh, fires are still raging across Australia, depending on when this goes to air. Mm. And so I was at a prayer vigil and I'd just been reading Peter's book when you were saying about how you'd found Australia changed when you came back. And one thing they did at this prayer vigil, this, you had people from, from so every faith just about um, represented there, and we sang uh, that old song, We Are Australian. You, we, are, we are one, but we are many. And from all the lands on earth we come. And I thought, I haven't heard that in so long. We haven't sung that. It hasn't been or We haven't had new songs like that. That hasn't been. And it really uh, was, was quite, I could feel the shift. Uh, and it was kind of a remembering. This is what we used to be like. We used to talk like this. How, how has it changed so much that there's been a lot more fear in our conversations, particularly around race? Yeah, and I think that's been a product of 9-11, of, of where we and our politicians have tended to use fear as a way of, of, of making the kinds of changes to, to security legislation. And again, I know I'm sounding like a broken record. Don't get me wrong, I understand I'm not minimising the threats of, of terrorism and extremism. But I do think that there has been a fairly cynical leveraging of fear to demonise anyone who is not considered to be you know, Australian value, of Australian values. I, you know, that idea of Aussie values um, always makes me wince because... I, I don't really know that anybody can put their finger on what Aussie values really are, except things like mateship and a fair go for all and so on. But those are the thought of fairly universal human values, you know, being fair, um, looking after one another, you know, <laughs> they, they, don't separate, they, don't, they don't separate us massively from, from anybody else. But when you start using those kinds of phrases, um, Aussie values, it, it acts as a kind of dog whistle to suggest that anyone who is not the classic model of, of an Aussie, which we take to be generally white Anglo-Saxon um, 
origins, you know, is is becomes quite difficult. I remember um, when I was walking into to vote. I think it might have been at the twenty thirteen election, and I took I took a Greens How to Vote card because it was handed to me, and I had a bit of a conversation with them about the asylum seeker situation. And I had someone who was I won't say which party, but another party was over there and said, "What are you doing taking that? You're un-Australian." And I thought, how has it become un-Australian to... When did it become un-Australian to have an interest in, you know, um, people who might be struggling as refugees? But there's this interesting minute where, where if you... The, the, where you're in, if you challenge what the government position is, by some quarters you will be called un-Australian, even if that government position goes against those core Australian values we've discussed. Well, I'd, I'd argue that actually... And let, let me go back to something that we like to think of as a fundamentally Australian value of Australian trait of larrikinism, a kind of scepticism of authority. That's Australian. And, and I actually think that's a very healthy thing mm. to have. Again, not in a cynical sense, but just to say, hang on a minute, mm. is what we're being told really fair? Is it right? You know, and, and if it turns out that, that it survives that kind of interrogation, yeah. then fine. <coughs> but it is not un-Australian. To, to question mm. authority. Mm. In fact, it is deeply Australian yes. to do so. And we see various jurisdictions toying with the idea of cracking down on the right to protest. Yeah. Um, yeah. As, if, as if disruption of what they have defined as normal, as right, as Australian, is, is to be un-Australian and um, is to, to be attacking the fabric of society and has to be outlawed. So I see, I see that as just creeping... A, a creeping extension of the anti-terror laws it's actually trying to shut down anything that challenges the status quo and challenges power and challenges capital and certainly there does seem to be an an element where you sort of side with a political party or an ideology and that then you know if the truth is separate to what they are saying you ignore the truth to take their position and i know that you you mentioned the bushfires too and it's been a bizarre time in in terms of exploring what truth is Mm -hmm. in australia to see what has happened over the past couple of months in this country of a significant portion of people wanting to have the discussion around climate others dismissing it saying no 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 the truth is this is just arsonists you know, that, that there is this, this wrestling within the nation where there is this great disagreeance of, of what the truth is on this matter. Um, one of the things that really struck me, this came out partly through a lot of the conversations that I had in prison, but also some of the research afterwards, and this is around the concept of the grey zone, which is something which an organisation has spoken about quite a lot. Now, the grey zone is... Um, the space which allows pluralist discussion. It allows us to live in a multicultural, pluralist society, multi-faith society, without winding up in open conflict. It's that space for tolerance. It's it's that sort of grey area where where you're allowing the the black and white to mix, if you like. It's the space that allows dissent. It allows good journalism, free discussion, uh, free media, freedom of thought, freedom of ideas. The organisation that talks about the grey zone is Islamic State because it wants to shut down the grey zone. It published an online article in a magazine, an online magazine that it has called The Big, called The Extinction of the Grey Zone, where it wants to eliminate that space for tolerance to create a binary situation where you're either on one side of the divide, either pro-Islamic or against 
against yeah. the against them, so that you there is no space in the middle for 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 compromise. Mm. Um, and the mm. one person that they quote very prominently in that article is George W. Bush mm. when he said, "In this war on terror, you are either with us or you're with the terrorists," yeah. Yeah. because it, again they're saying yeah. that Bush has helped take away that grey zone. And this is the thing that concerns me, yeah. that we are, when we lose our tolerance, when we lose our capacity for acceptance and nuance in debate, when we lose our capacity to listen, mm. when we demonize others as un-Australian in some way, when we, mm. when we talk about the left or the right as mm. if everybody mm. on one side of the political spectrum is a bunch of idiots, whereas yep. those on our side are all smart, mm. We, we, we are doing the job of the Islamic extremists yeah, for them. We are yeah, eliminating, absolutely. we are wiping yes. out that grey zone yes. that so they have recognised as a, mm. as, a, as a problem. If we're speaking about truth, then that reclaiming the grey space is almost the way we need mm. to go societally. That no, grey zone is where dialogue can happen too because you actually sit in a space of liminality and actually listen listen to the other rather rather than what we've got at the moment which is a culture of proselytizing which is mm. where we we in each group of we's feel mm. that we have the truth and we have to get the truth across to the other people and we have to batter them with the truth and they have to be persuaded to come all the way across to our side of the camp mm. whereas dialogue is about i'm going to listen to you and hear why you hold a particular view and then you might listen to me and in the end we both might be shifted into a completely different space or at least we'll understand what the difference is mm. and um, just the other day I was uh, reminded of politicians like Jim Killen from the past who's, who had who was a liberal politician but he, you know, his, his best friend was a Labor politician and at his funeral um, his, the eulogy was given by a Labor politician that would not happen today and in parliament house the the, the dining room which was a cross-party dining room has disappeared in parliament house in in, in uh, canberra because now it's seen as being a traitor to talk to the other side yeah. and so we've got this the gray zone is being obliterated from our political discourse it's being um, certainly smashed by the way we use uh, social media and I think one of the challenges for people of faith and uh, in any community that's interested in building social capital is actually um, working out ways to reintroduce dialogical processes in the grey zone. And I think one part of, of sustaining that grey zone is also to dive into the abyss of history. Mm. And actually, uh, and I know, Peter, you talked about um, how it's been so easy to narrate um, the war on terror as a clash by both sides as a clash between civilizations as a crash a clash between Christianity and Islam as if they have always been um, you know, opposing forces and it was only the black or the white whichever side you happen to be on you know and that that's actually not true and how if we actually know our history better the, and and look at that subjective truths then we can get a much um, find a way to live in that grey zone, I think. Yeah, and one of the things I've noticed um, in a lot of my reporting, whether it's been on, on religious or sectarian conflicts or ethnic conflicts, underlying it, if you really interrogate the conflicts, the drivers of the conflicts, it's rarely, if ever, about theology or ethnicity. It's 
almost always about politics. It's about politicians leveraging those, those differences which feel very tangible and real, which we tend to really grab onto, particularly when we're trying to identify and create a kind of closed, close-knit group. And I understand why it's a very human thing to do. But fundamentally, the driver of these kinds of, these kinds of conflicts is political. Um, it's, it's, it's about political power, it's about economic mm. resources, it's, not, it's very rarely, if ever, about genuine theological mm. differences that make it impossible. Because if you think about it, there is very little that, makes, that would make it impossible mm. for various faiths to, li- to coexist. Mm. I can't yeah. think of anything <coughs> no. um, that, would, that would make it impossible for you to live alongside someone of a different faith. And many people have done it for a long time in yeah. many parts of the world. Um, Fiji and places like that, they do it all the time. Well, Celebrate I, each other's festivals. And you know, I lived in Kenya for a long time, yeah. particularly along the coast. Now, Kenya is, 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 um, is, is, has very, very strong Muslim communities along the coast and very strong Christian communities mm. inland. Um, but faith is rarely, if ever, a cause mm. of conflict in Kenya. Mm. The, big dry, the big problems are, tend to be ethnic, mm. tend to be tribal. But again, those conflicts, if you look, at, are driven by, by, by politics. But yes. it's interesting to see the way that those faiths coexist mm. because they always have, because they understand <coughs> the mm. need for, 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 for tolerance and space, and they respect yeah. the, the space that one another has. And they, they, yeah. there, there is rarely, if ever, any kind of conflict between them. It's just because the politics of Kenya tends to work mm. more conveniently along ethnic lines than it, than it is along religious lines. Yeah. In the 1930s, uh, Simone Weil, the wonderful sort of nearly Christian mystic, um, she, she wrote a very short piece. It's only about 19 pages long, but it, it, it talked about how she thought that political parties would destroy democracy. <laughs> because in the end, the party becomes interested in itself rather than the process which it is which it was set up to serve and you know, I, I can see that sort of that's one of the big drivers in American politics at the moment um, you know, people people putting up with the most ridiculous stuff that if you were really seeking truth and national interest and all the stuff that politics talks about um, being interested in they would not um, begin to tolerate some of the stuff that's happening there and, and we would have the same here. And so I'm, I'm just wondering whether she was just being incredibly prescient, um, warning us that there are self-interested organisations that s- look like they're interested in truth-telling and democracy but are actually in the end going to undermine it for their own purposes. I think we have to accept human nature for what it is, that it tends to want to group around or create like-minded groups that you can identify with and share, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's understanding that that is not threatened by the, by the existence of, of others. Um, you know, and it's understanding that fundamental tendency and recognising it for what it is and, and not, not being drawn into conflict because of that. You know that that's that's what's that's what's important. Right? We are human after all, and these are features of human exi- throughout human existence. I, I think though sometimes we don't we're going in blind. We're not seeing 
you know, we're thinking something is ideological or theological um, and not seeing the political motivations behind some things and not actually understanding how it works, which is why we sort of want the church to wake up also and not, you know, the, the hopefully most people are recognising that, that you can't... Um, be practicing person of faith and ignore politics. You know, I don't know who said that you. If you don't do politics, politics will do you. And uh, I, I think it's a good line for this sort of scenario. And when we're talking about how um, the public debate is being swamped by either ideologies or personality politics, when really there's um, and we're decreasing, I think, our understanding of how the political machinery is working. Yes, mm. okay. there's one more element to the what is truth discussion in the world today which we obviously have to look at because one of the major obstacles is uh, the government system, the democracy, which has become interested in party politics. But the misinformation, obviously, that that has continued to spread is another big part of this. And I'm I'm interested with your media experience, um, you know, and I'm sure you're on probably on Facebook or some other social medias like the rest of us, you see how a post from some random name can get 20,000 shares, which says, oh, I've actually uncovered the truth about what this party has done with this. And all these people share it angrily saying, I knew they were up to this. And suddenly it's almost like there's a, a drastic acceptance of truth from or what might look like truth from anywhere we can get it. Um, and this misinformation obviously has been at times just random at times it has seemed organized by different yeah. interests what do you make of what's happening in the world in, in you know what's been called the well, fake news era yeah I'm, I'm, for a start I have a real problem with the idea of fake news um, just the just the term because I think the, the term fake news um, implies that news that is genuinely faked or, or falsified or, you know, is wrong. And, and that implies something that you can easily identify and stop. And it, the problem is that it's not. It's, it's incredibly com- complex and nuanced. It's much, much more challenging to, to deal with in a way that uh, the most of us ever really fully understand or appreciate. But the difficulty with social media is that it's created an environment where you can confirm any crazy idea that you you want. There's a lot of there are enough serious online sources out there that'll prove to you that the world is flat. If that's mm-hmm. what you want to believe, you can yeah. find any number of websites and mathematical calculations to show that the world is flat. Yeah, I looked it up the other day. It's really fascinating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nearly convinced, but not quite. Almost, yeah. Well, okay. but, well, if you're already predisposed yeah, yeah, to thinking absolutely. the world is flat, then you can find, absolutely. you can confirm, you can have that, that, that mm. belief confirmed. Yep. And, you know, again, it's, it's one of those fundamentals of human nature. We, we tend to go for confirmation bias. We tend to like things that mm. confirm the way that we, that our initial beliefs or suspicions or prejudices. And social media does that extraordinarily well. In fact, it's designed mm. to do that. Mm. The algorithms um, mm. that drive traffic, that drive us, that put certain feeds or certain stories in, on our feeds in front of our faces um, are designed to make sure that we get the kinds of things that confirm the, thing, the beliefs that we had in the past. It's, you know, it's the filter bubbles that we keep hearing about and it is a real thing and it is a problem. And I think that's one of the difficulties that that social media has created a world where you really where you believe that you can't trust anybody or anything Mm. Um, and i think that's 
that's a real that's a really difficult situation because then we don't have any common basis for conversation I think another worrying part of it that I've noticed, at least anecdotally, is that any media organisation now that publishes anything, there is a level of scepticism and suspicion from many people. But if a random name, as I said, you know, um, John Stevenson pops up on Facebook with this post that's been shared 20,000 times, there isn't that level of scepticism and suspicion put to that. It's just taken at, at face value. So it seems to be a whole lot of levels that are standing in the way of us accessing what what the truth actually is in any given matter and keeping us away from the grey space. As someone who's exploring this, I mean, it sounds like systemically we need a change. Yeah, I think I think we do. Um, and I, 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 this is really where you start to get into very, very complex um, algorithmic um, calculations and mathematics and, and so on. I, I think if we accept a couple of things, we accept that that social media has engineered our way and it has engineered us into a really difficult space where we um, are becoming dysfunctional as a community. We can't have the kinds of common conversations with each other, that we're being exposed to filter bubbles, um, if we, if, that, we, that our politics has become dysfunctional because of it, um, that it's become possible for outright lies to get incredible traction online. If, if, this, if we've engineered our way into this world, there ought to be a way of engineering our way out of it. We have to recognise the problem, though, and I, I don't think we're, we're really at that point where we fully understand. I think we're, we're kind of addicted to, to our phones, and we forget that, in fact, Facebook and Twitter and iPhones and, or smartphones are all man-made, engineered constructs that are designed for particular purposes. Now, they're designed to make money for the shareholders of those, of those incredibly wealthy companies. And you have to take your hat off to the engineers because they have been extraordinarily successful at fulfilling their core purpose, which was to harness our attention and monetize our attention and to make money for their, for, 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 their, for their companies. That's, again, not making a value judgment about it. It's just that they've, they've been far more successful than, than I think even they could possibly have ever imagined. But we also need to recognise that it's actually not serving us. And if it's not serving us, we need to re-engineer it in a way that is serving us. Um, if we can be half as successful at serving the public good, creating systems, social media systems, algorithms that actually encourage debate, that bring us together rather than drive us apart, then I think we'll have achieved something. And I suppose that's what you're doing or what you're researching in your role at the University of Queensland. Is that really almost your core focus? How do we find a new system? Well, How do we get to the core of this? That's, that's a part of it. Um, we're, we're involved in quite a few conversations, and certainly one of the conversations that we're interested in is is, is that conversation around a, a, an effective functional media and how we support it. But we're also very concerned about, and let's go back to the very conversations that we had at the beginning of this, we're concerned about that intersection of national security and media freedom and the way that we're seeing more and more spaces closed off from, from media scrutiny in a way that I think is, is dysfunctional. Now, that still feeds into this broader discussion about making sure that we get to the bottom of the truth 
um, we get to the truth of what is what is happening, what is being done in our names. Not necessarily because it's always cynical or because we're trying to uncover bad stuff, but because we need that flow of information. We need a, a, a solid understanding, a common understanding about certain issues before we can ever get to any kind of serious decisions. So we need to step out of the black and white into a bit of grey. Uh, how do you think we do that, Sue? What's, where are some ways we can do that societally? I mean, obviously, the church can exist as a place that you do encounter people who see things differently. Yeah. I'm ju- I, just, I guess the reason I ask is I'm taken back to the, the conversation we had with Jeff Sparrow last year at the Byron Writers Festival, and he quoted the stats around declining uh, participation in, in yeah. social institutions worldwide, that we're not talking just churches are dwindling, but book clubs are dwindling, RSL clubs, every... Every area where we would go and engage, perhaps in a grey space, mm. in a social mm. a- space with other people, mm. seems to be dwindling. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. how do we re-engage with the grey spaces? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that grassroots sort of stuff, which is what Jeff Sparrow was alluding to as well, in direct politics, get involved in your communities. Actually, get involved if you feel strongly about something, go along to protests. Actually, listen to other people who are more knowledgeable than you about things, um, but also work alongside. I always think, you know, on on a bad day in the church, you might go what am I doing you know when you're in in this line of work and I always come back to those moments um, of connection of deep connection you have with people not just the the there's obviously the sacramental moments on Sunday mornings which are powerful and sacred but also the the deep connection at other times when you're working alongside for others and you build relationships and you see and hopefully some of those others are quite different to, to yourself Mm. So you're not have in this homogenous community, you're actually intersecting a whole lot of communities and you work alongside and start to see different perspectives. But that said, I, I um, am so fascinated by the role of journalism in this because, you know, for my work, I feel the most valuable things is the small stuff. Um, alongside individual to individual. That's where I feel if I, you know, on my deathbed I could look back and go, you know, that mattered, all those those moments mattered. But I think journalism has the capacity to go and actually have those encounters that you could then share with all of us who are doing grassroots stuff um, but can here then um, have encounters with people we might never have encounters with at all. And so I think um, protecting that space is, is so vital. One of the major grey spaces we have and an amplified grey space, I suppose, is what you're saying there as well. And maybe as a way of of moving towards wrapping this up, Peter, it, we are just about, as we're recording this, a couple of weeks away from your five-year anniversary of, of touching down at Brisbane Airport. Um, there's that great video on YouTube of you touching down still and that, that um, what I imagine was quite an ecstatic moment. Five years on, how has it all changed you? Obviously, part of that we have covered in this conversation, but... You know, I imagine as you reflect on it, it must be a bizarre thing to reflect on that that happened to me. And especially now living in a place like Brisbane, which relatively is somewhat safe. <laughs> yes. it, must, it must feel like a different lifetime. Yeah, it does actually. It's a bit discombobulating, I think, when you put it like that. Um, the life that I had in Africa and what I went through in Egypt is so, so vastly removed, or at least it feels vastly removed when, you know, you walk around Brisbane. Um, this wonderful, peaceful, subtropical city that we live in. Um, but, you know, again, I, we, all, we all share the same planet. Um, and I, you know, I, I've been one of the few, I've been incredibly privileged to have been able to span some of the, the greatest extremes on Earth, frankly, you know, amongst 
the, the refugees in Afghanistan or Somalia, um, on Haiti, you know, the earthquake victims in Haiti, um, and the, the very wealthiest people, you know, in New York or here in the happiest people here in Brisbane. It's it's a it's a huge privilege, but it's also something I think is I feel quite quite passionate about. The reason I went abroad in the first place was to get a greater sense of what the world was about, to indulge that curiosity um, and to help people see and understand just what is going on in the world and in, on a planet that we that we share. We get very we very easily slip into a sense of, of borders. We define ourselves by our by our borders, but you very quickly learn that these things are arbitrary human constructs, that the only genuinely natural boundary is, is the boundary of our own planet. Um, mm. Everything else is, is, is drawn by, by human beings, and if we get too caught up with that, then I think we're in real trouble. Um, and as a, a lifelong journalist uh, and foreign correspondent and our journalism professor, I know a lot of people are wondering where can I get news that I can trust now? <laughs> you know, because because I, there is the belief that every news agency is oh that's that side or that side. Look, let me say let me say one more th- one thing on, in in defence of news organisations. I mean, certainly it happens. Every news organisation, every human organisation, has its own view of the world, has its own kind of political culture. Again, this is the way humans are, and if we think that it is possible to have a genuinely apolitical organisation, we're kidding ourselves. We all tend to you know, discuss and talk about things and, and our politics tends to move in similar directions to those that we are closest with. News organisations are the same. So I would not say to you that there is any one absolutely unbiased organisation out there. What I would say is that there are ones that spend a lot of time and energy um, getting things right being as independent, recognising their biases and stepping outside of those biases. And I would recommend that as a news consumer, people take read a diet, you know, broaden their diet. It's like food. You've got the, the, the broader your diet, the healthier you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to eat your greens. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that doesn't mean I have to read the Courier Mail. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the Courier Mail. I thoroughly recommend you read the Australian, the Guardian, the Herald, you read... The New York Times, you read the Times of London, um, The Economist, large organisations that have good track records um, of, that have been around for a long time that do put a lot of time, effort and energy um, and professional, professionalism into, into, into their, their work that, that, that stand on, on their integrity. Well, uh, if you want to hear more of Peter's story, you can get the book, The First Casualty. Um, Peter, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. A very timely conversation as well, going into a year of another American election, and who knows what will happen there. But I thank you so much for the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.